Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Pod. We're back. After a week off, we're switching podcast platforms, but we are back and now the podcast is on Every single platform that exists. What's going on, Simon? How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing well. Uh, excited to be back. It'll be uh, kind of nice to upload that through a new platform and uh, make sure we reach as many people as we can. Yes, sir. The reason that we switched is because it was hosted before on my old platform. But now with Stratosphere 2, I'm on a new platform and we decided to take the podcast elsewhere so that's another plug stratosphere 2 is available at stratosphereinvesting.com if you can't remember that getstockmarket.com is now redirecting to stratosphere 2 because now the screener that was low tech before is now high tech so i'm very excited you guys to check that out getstockmarket.com will bring you right to stratosphere investing All right, today we have a jam-packed show. We're talking gaming primarily. At the end of the show, we're going to talk about Canadian banks as well because we've been getting lots of questions from listeners. So that'll be a small segment at the end of the show. But gaming is a industry sector that I find very interesting. Simon finds very interesting. But let's not be confused. Let's not uh, be confused here. Neither Simon or I are currently gamers. So if you are a gamer and you're going WTF, man, that's okay. We're not pretending to be gamers. We don't know the industry. But from an investment perspective, I think we have uh, enough research under our belt to have you a good show today. Simon, were you ever a gamer in your in your lifetime? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was a big gamer when I was younger, so... Um definitely old school gaming so if uh, we have some older listeners they may remember um you know doom uh, quake series i was really into that when i was uh, i think early teens just started high school um so those were kind of the classic games where i would try to play multiplayer with uh, dial-up internet <laughs> that was interesting the guys would just kind of lag all the way through um but yeah i've always i mean i still play a little bit of games here and there but uh, as you get older more responsibilities uh less time to uh, kind of have some fun and play games but definitely um still enjoy them from time to time i can see why uh, it can be a really interesting area for uh, people to invest in so that makes two of us that are former gamers because when I was a kid, my mom could not get me to turn off Call of Duty. Like, that was my thing in high school. Is come home, fire up the Xbox, and play Call of Duty with my buddies. And that, that, was, that was a thing. That was a big period of my high school uh, time spent. And before that, I played all kinds of computer games. Like, I was that nerdy kid. Now, same thing. I can't even find a second in the day where that would be possible. Um, but I wish it was possible. Maybe with the new console cycle, maybe I'll buy myself an Xbox or a PS5. Probably not, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. So 
there's a couple interesting trends that are happening that we're going to talk about. So this COVID environment has accelerated gaming in a major way. Every single company you can think of in the gaming space is record smashing quarters right now. Like unbelievable acceleration and growth and in player base and, and time spent. So Activision Blizzard, the developer of the Call of Duty flagship franchise, saw a 30% increase in players and a 70% increase in time played in the ecosystem. Um, and Call of Duty Warzone driving a lot of that growth. But that is really impressive, and it's not just Activision Blizzard. EA, Take-Two, all these companies are reporting massive acceleration and smashing growth, revenue, margins, everything. So it's very interesting. Another trend to think about is mobile gaming. People playing games on their phones is the fastest growing segment, and this surprises me. Simon, do you do you ever play games on your phone? Like, a little bit. I mean, I yeah. think like everyone, I've played uh, Hang- Angry Birds and Candy Crush. <laughs> um, that's, yeah, those yeah. are the two I kind of I played. Aside from that, not really. Um, yeah, I kind of stick uh, stuck more to to PC games. Yeah, me too. I don't see the appeal. So this stat goes contrary to what you would think. I guess it's it's obviously a more casual gaming environment, playing on your phone. I don't see the appeal uh, whatsoever, but hey, the, the numbers speak for themselves. This is the fastest growing segment in gaming. So that is interesting. Well, it, it, um, also, yeah. it also has the, the widest reach, right? So in exactly. a lot of cases, people just can't afford either a console or they can't afford a, a PC gaming rig, which will cost you even more than a, count, a console. So it, it does have a lot of reach. That's definitely the, the advantage for it. Right. And with, you know, every single developing nation now, every person is getting a smartphone before they get, you know, let's say a gaming console or a computer. Uh, This is a way for them to play video games. So in that sense, on a global perspective, makes a lot of sense. So another couple interesting things coming out, Sony obviously unveiling the PS5 and the PS5 digital version, which does not have a disc. And then Xbox coming out with the Series X and Series S, which is kind of the equivalent of that. And uh, there's other hardware players to play this space. Like NVIDIA has the really uh, powerful GPU. And and there's we've talked about this before we started recording. Simon, so, do you want to just mention Xbox's pretty innovative like hardware as a service, low cost? No, like zero cost to get the console and then you're on a bit of a subscription yeah yeah no so uh xbox is pretty cool what they're doing so i had the the paste right in front of me and now i think i lost it but essentially what they're offering is they're offering people um to 
get a console with no upfront costs and they also get the membership included in that um, so that's kind of that's pretty cool because it does give people the opportunity to get the latest count console but also gives Microsoft reoccurring revenue so they had two option uh, just on top of my head I believe the first option with $35 a month for the more expensive console which is the one that is um, that has like kind of the classic like CD or disc and then $25 a month and when I I say those amounts during US dollars, $25 amount for the uh, console that's more digital. So you can't really buy a physical disc. You have to download everything digitally and also includes a uh, 24 months uh, subscription. So that goes on for 24 months, those payments. Um, it is more expensive, obviously, than if you were just to buy the console, but it may actually reach a lot more people in terms of getting that console into their homes and then potentially selling more things to, to those players via like in-game, right? So it's pretty very interesting idea from Microsoft. I'm not surprised. Um, and Microsoft even, I don't know if they're going to be making money or not on that. Um, but even if they're losing a bit of money, Microsoft is such a huge company. It's so profitable. They can afford losing a bit of money for, you know, potentially getting more customer and higher margins down the line. So um, you have to be impressed with what Microsoft is doing from that perspective. And I think this is genius because companies like Microsoft and Sony that do have lots of money, Microsoft especially, of course, getting the console, like the hardware aspect into the home and then being able to pull that recurring revenue stream once you're inside of that ecosystem makes a lot of sense. Like at this price point and how complex these systems are, I wouldn't be surprised if, if both for Microsoft and Sony on a per uh, per console is a loss leader up front. I would not be shocked at that. I haven't looked into the economics, but you got to think that that's where the ecosystem is going, especially we're seeing now the games. We were talking before this, like the, the pricing and the model has completely changed. The games seem to have little to no pricing power over time uh they were 60 bucks when the consoles came out and they're still like what 60 70 bucks yeah yeah and they were still <laughs> they were 60 dollars back in the day in the in the 1990s when i started gaming and that hasn't changed but again it's uh it's a different model nowadays but the pricing and we were talking about that it's i was kind of surprised where you'd pay back in 1995 dollars 60 bucks for a game and today it's about the same price but again now you know they'll sell in game there's other ways of them for monetizing that uh but no it's it's interesting to to kind of think about it yeah so the models completely change right because uh fortnite owned by epic games they came out with the smash hit fortnite that was free to download so all of a sudden there's no risk, right? There's no there's no buyer risk to trying out and playing the game if it's free to download, free to start playing. Um, and then now they have this microtransactions of in-game purchases available. And that model seemed to be super powerful and, and seems to be where it's going. Um, so although the pricing of these games hasn't changed, it looks like the D to C game model 
uh, has improved margins. So maybe revenue hasn't changed, but you're seeing this. I'm just going to give you an example. Over the past 10 years, Activision Blizzard, if you were to compound annual growth rate, actually only has a 5% revenue growth. And now this is accelerating in, in, in 2020 with COVID, but 5% revenue growth for a stock that trades at 34 times earnings is not very impressive. However, they've had over 30% on earnings per share growth and well over 10% on on the dividend because they pay a dividend as well. Uh, and margins have increased. Well, obviously, you can tell by that math. So these businesses are changing in the way that the model is set. Uh, so we're going to get into a few of these names, uh, but a couple other trends we want to talk about. So streaming is a big thing. So there's Twitch from Amazon. There's Facebook gaming, which is which is new, and they seem to be shoving that down uh, users' throats. And then Microsoft had their Mixer uh, stint, which has now closed. So that was a pretty big fail from Microsoft, but they gave it a shot. Um, I guess you, YouTube, you, YouTube, to you, some YouTube, extent. YouTube, YouTube, yeah, YouTube yeah. is yeah in a major way. I mean, all mm-hmm. the like big influencers, if you will, of gaming, they'll have. You know, pe- people watching them live and in their recorded uh, videos. Do you do you get this streaming? Like the the watching other people play video games is now as much of a user base as people playing them themselves. So do you, do you get this? I mean, it's hard for me. I I know some people are trying to compare it to sports, and I think it's. I mean, I guess some people do enjoy watching other people play. I don't personally really enjoy it all that much. But um, the one thing I do enjoy on Twitch and I will watch from time to time is, as you guys know, I do enjoy playing poker. And there's some top pros that will actually stream live with a 10-minute delay because obviously if you end up on their table, you don't want to be seeing their cards. Right. Um, So that is like, to me, that's probably the one thing I like it because you can actually see how the top poker pros, uh, what you know, how they're thinking, how they're approaching different situations. But from a pure, like, you know, watching someone uh, playing Fortnite or something like that, I'm like, eh, I mean... I think I'll do something else, but I know I know it's very popular. So and it's a pretty big uh, growth trend, growth trend. So I'm sure it'll keep uh, growing going forward. Yeah, yeah, totally. And if it's like anything, right? If if you are very interested in something, and the best in the world is, it's very impressive to see someone who's elite at that thing you are very interested in. I, I get it. You wanna you wanna watch the skill, um, and that's kind of just like any live sports you watch. So I I do get it. I mean, at first I didn't, but I I think I do get it. I do get it. So let's get into a couple of these names. So the the biggest game developer, um, well, it would actually be probably Tencent in all their investments. But let's get to Activision Blizzard. 61 billion in market cap. We mentioned 5% revenue growth, but accelerating. 11% on the dividend. Pretty impressive, over 30% earnings per share growth. It trades at 10 times sales and uh, over 30 times earnings. Margins at 70%. Gross margins, pretty impressive. Their Q2 
reported 30% increase in players and 70% increase in time played. You can't not talk about Call of Duty when you talk about Activision Blizzard. That is their flagship game. And the underappreciated part of all of these developers, I think, is this revenue doesn't seem recurring because you're not on a subscription, but the staying power of a uh, flagship like Call of Duty, people buy this game every year no matter what. It doesn't matter what it's called. People buy this game every single year. That sounds like recurring revenue to me. Yeah, it's a very, and you'll see, and with all, like, I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about other gaming companies too, but typically the ones that'll do the best is when they have a flagship franchise like a Call of Duty, for example, because they'll be able to come out pretty frequently with some either, you know, expansions or new titles related to that franchise, and they'll usually have a pretty big following in Activision Blizzard. Obviously, Call of Duty, but some other franchises that they have that people are, I'm sure, familiar with. Um, maybe not as big, but there's Candy Crush, there's Diablo, uh, Tony Hawk, a big, you know, a bit older, but uh, World of Warcraft, um, Overwatch, and Starcraft are all big franchises. Obviously, Call of Duty is probably the most popular one right now, but I know these other franchises have some big followings too. Yeah, Candy Crush was the number one grossing app in U.S. app stores. Uh, again. <laughs> I, I mean, come hey, on. You, can, you can play it while you're, at the, while you're in the washroom, so I guess I, that I, Yes, <laughs> you, you certainly can. You certainly can. Um, very surprising to me. But, but it hey. is a game, though, that attracts, like, my girlfriend likes candy crush i think candy crush you know people can think whatever they want it's very simple i get it but you know i think it attracts a lot more women than a lot of the other titles we just mentioned so you know it, it makes sense that it's it's that popular they have something for everyone you're right the demographics they're, they're serving it up i when i think of these gaming companies and the intellectual property that makes up that 61 billion in market cap is the worlds that they've built, the characters they've built. It's like Disney in terms of Disney can continue to pull levers from this, these worlds and characters that they've created. They can continue to generate revenue and shareholder value from this intellectual property. And gaming feels very similar in that aspect um, to Disney. Do you, do you see that comparison or am I, am I stretching this bit? No, I think uh, that's totally true. I think um, those franchises do have a staying power, but again, I think there is a limit to their staying power. I know Diablo, for example, I was a big fan. It's still a big franchise, but it's definitely not I don't think what it used to be, um, you know, you can do World of Warcraft, Starcraft as well, but they can, you know, those franchises can span over multiple decades. So um, I, I agree from that standpoint. Yeah, because I mean, the number, uh, the best game on consoles in terms of sales, Call of Duty year after year, I think eight of 10 years in the 2010 decade was Call of Duty in terms of number one sales. And let me tell you, I was contributing at some point in that decade uh, to, to buying those titles every year. All right, moving on. 
EA. EA is the 36 billion in market cap. Consistent, steady rev growth. Again, another smash quarter from them. Revenue very recurring in my mind with the sports games coming out year after year. They can continue to to, to pull that. Um, some people buy that every year, no matter what. You know, they're getting NHL 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20. Even if there's no changes, they want to see Austin Matthews on the cover of NHL 20 in their living room. And uh, he's pretty good at hockey, so I can't, uh, I can't, can't blame them. Similar gross margins, a little cheaper on valuation, eight times sales, 19 times earnings. This seems like the, the boring stalwart of the group in my eyes. Um, but posting some pretty impressive quarters. Did you ever you buy these sports games? Uh, no, no, I wasn't really uh, big into uh, sports games. I had like Stanley Cup 90, 1994, I think that was one of them that I had where you can like, depending like if you did a shot from a certain place in the game, like on the opposition, um, you would always get a goal. So there was like, there was some like glitches on uh, Super Nintendo, but um, whether it's EA or, you know, Activision, Blizzard or any of the other major one, I think Take-Two Interactive as well yeah what i do like um, that these companies are doing is you have some subscription models and you have kind of a two tier where one tier gives you access to a bunch of titles that are older but still look pretty nice and for a lot of gamers including myself those are really attractive because um, i'm looking at ea and it's five dollars a month or thirty dollars for the year and you have access to hundreds of titles they may not be the most up-to-date ones but you know if I'm looking to play every now and then and I don't really care if I'm getting the most up-to-date NHL version versus the one that's like three years old and very similar graphics, um, that's really attractive for someone like that. And then you have the other option where it's the more premium subscription, more expensive, but you have access to a bunch of newer titles. So I think that's really smart what they're doing. It gives them a reoccurring revenue and gives them a, you know, different kind of clientele that they can get some revenue uh, from. Yeah, and it looks like it's that subscription's part of that Xbox All Access Pass that's coming out. So that's a pretty smart partnership from EA. And, and being on the subscription model in terms of actually locking in customers makes sense to me because their games are the, the, the ones that come out every year. Um, so people who like those games may as well just be on that subscription because I think they're going to end up saving a little bit of money than actually paying for those titles every year. So if there's value for the customer, that makes sense. And then EA gets to, to lock you in. I mean, it makes sense to me. I remember uh, Madden 2004, you could play as Michael Vick and he was like a 99 overall. And it was absolutely absurd whether you threw the ball or just decided to run every play, he was virtually untackable. And if if anyone remembers cheat code Michael Vick into Madden 04, you'll know what I was talking about. It was, uh, it's, he's kind of gone down as like a, a legend in sports games history is Michael Vick 04. Um, good nostalgia there. All right, moving on. Take two interactive 18 billion in market cap uh 12 percent compound annual revenue growth 
chunky revenue growth, because this is probably of the ones we've mentioned so far, has a longer cycle in the games. Uh, most, a lot of them are single-player story games. Uh, in 2019, 48% revenue growth. So you can see the chunky there. And 47% and 93% in 2013 and 2014, respectively. What happened there? Well, GTA V came out, which is one of the biggest best-selling video games of all time. Uh, NBA 2K, Grand Theft Auto, Bioshock, Outer Worlds are some of their, their titles. So with the, the longer cycle, but these games are a hit and have big big staying power um did you ever play grand theft auto yeah yeah i played the the old school one on super nintendo <laughs> come on it was on yeah Su- i didn't even yeah. know that yeah that's when uh, it started it was like 2d it was awesome you could like you could burn people in 2d blow up cars like shitty graphics yeah. but uh, yeah it was it was really cool i mean obviously but uh yeah, Take Two Interactive uh, is a great company. They have good title. They have Red Dawn Redemption too. They Red came Dead. Out, uh, yeah, so that's that um, a good game. Yeah, that's a good game. Yeah, and I think that has all the makings of a really good franchise. But uh, one thing I wanted to mention whenever people are looking, especially as these uh, like bigger kind of blockbuster companies that have these big franchises, uh, keep in mind that the revenue the increases in revenue that they may get you'll have to look at it over a longer period of time because it can be cyclical because of when those titles will come out so it's possible from year to year you'll see a big drop you really want to look at them on a more like say a five to ten year basis where you can average out the revenue and get a better idea of how they're increasing their their revenues and their profits over time yeah, that's that's a good point, especially with Take Two. Uh, the cycles are longer. Like Bioshock does not come out every year. Uh, by the way, that was a really good storyline. I remember playing that game. Uh, so th- those are the three that people talk about a lot uh, on U.S. markets. Different business model. Just very very recently IPO'd Unity ticker U. This is my personal favorite biz model in gaming. Uh, they operate under the Create Solutions and Operate Solutions. Those are their two segments. So the Create Solutions, about 50% of games are built on their engine. Um, and they have an even bigger market dominance in mobile. So that excites me based on the numbers coming out of mobile. So developers use the unity game engine to make their games and then operate solutions is also interesting so post launch you know the advertising ads the servers the uh the content delivery in the cloud that's can also all be done on unity so developers can develop the game and deliver the content of the game through unity they just IPO'd, but they have a massive market share. Like I said, f- roughly 50% of games are built on Unity's engine. And that's t- roughly $20 billion in market cap today. This is a company with long, long runway for growth. Uh, they're not profitable, not generating cash flow, but revenue growth is explosive, of course. And... This as a service, this is the truest as a service in gaming that I can think of. I really like 
unity. And and I don't buy IPOs very often, if ever. I always say IPOs stand for it's probably overpriced. But damn, this is a really good business model. Yeah, I remember back in the day, um, some of the big game engines uh, were, I think Unreal Tournament was one, Half-Life was one for, uh, if some of you are familiar with the Counter-Strike, uh, Counter-Strike so that was built on the Half-Life engine. So I remember back in the day, you have you had the games that actually were like the base engines and then they'd have like spin-offs based on that, but now it's changed a bit. Like that's my understanding at least of... Uh, of unity is now they like you just said they provide that game engine yeah yeah and the other let's say roughly half of the market is built on the unreal engine owned by epic games so that's a good transition is tencent although they are this massive conglomerate and e-commerce payments gaming you name it in in china mostly they have a 40% stake in Epic Games and a over 90% stake. So they basically own all, all of Riot Games, the flagship seller of, of League of Legends. And if you haven't heard of League of Legends, well, you're probably living under a rock because everyone and their dog plays this game, it seems like. And uh, it's been around for a while now, and there's still a ridiculously large player base to it and uh tencent among all other things that they are massive in gaming is huge for them and and as a shareholder you can probably speak to that yeah oh yeah definitely i mean i'm happy shareholder of uh, tencent and definitely gaming as a whole i think is something i'm I might be doing a bit of a basket approach. I think you have a lot of good companies and you don't need to necessarily pick, you know, one or two. Uh, You could easily have a basket approach of like five, six companies and you keep an eye on them, but you don't necessarily need to be on top of them as much as you would be if you only took like picked one, for example. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I, you say that, but then the other counter argument that i'm thinking that not only i'm thinking of but other people will be is that a lot of these companies are consolidators that we've talked about already so you can kind of think about which one you think is the best management team and if you don't know that or don't have any insights on that or you're not a gamer yourself um then maybe what simon is saying is the right play but a lot of them are kind of diversified already in terms of the the games that they sell. They are consolidators, so that's something to think about as well. But my God, Tencent is dominant in gaming uh, on a global scale among everything else that they do uh, in China. So it's really hard not to like that stock. Another international one, of course, Nintendo. The Switch has been a shocker to to financial markets isn't that uh, always the case with nintendo it's it, like everyone it thinks they're they're dead and then it uh, was the wii back like what uh, 10 years ago or maybe a bit more and then you know they had nintendo switch and it seems like you know you always think they're gonna kind of fade off and uh, sell off into the sunset and they come out with something that's hugely popular usually with uh, the younger demographic yeah and 
like it's just funny. Like I, I play more Nintendo N sixty four up at a friend's house playing Mario Kart Golden and Smash Eye. Bros. What's that? Golden Eye. Golden Eye, yeah. Oh, yeah. Literally Golden Eye and playing Smash Bros, uh having a couple drinks versus the Switch, which is the number one selling console on the planet at the moment. I actually um, um I got the Super Nintendo um the retro little like a uh, console you know they mm, came out with that a yeah. couple years ago so uh, my yeah. girlfriend and i play i uh, play that together we'll play uh super mario world mario kart um like the graphics are hilarious but kind of reminds me when i was a kid so we kind of like it yeah the nostalgia in gaming is is unbelievable so yeah i mean that's a good product for them to be able to uh to lean on but the switch number one selling console um, I mean, the new Sony and, and Xbox consoles are coming out, so we'll see how, how that works. But as soon as you count out Nintendo, I have no stats to back this up, but this is how, how it feels, is that their launches seem to suck when the new consoles come out. Um, and then they have this like breakout later in the console cycle. It seems... To me, what it's like, again, no stats to back that up. Given all this, Simon, I'm putting, I put this on the show notes, and I don't even know if you've noticed it. You got to pick one. Tell me why that you that you would you would buy. You only get one. Um, yeah, just one. So I'm not going to say Tencent because I already own it. Um, only one. You know what? Uh, I think I would probably go with... Um, I think I'd probably go with Microsoft. It's just because their business as a whole, if you just leave out the gaming, is so strong. Uh, Microsoft can really afford to try new things that may be hugely profitable, but they could be losing money in the short term. And it's just, um, even if you compare it to Sony, I think Microsoft has a huge edge on them. It's just the financial resources that they have, their management, their leadership, um, they can really have more leeway and try new things. And and it's also a, uh, you know, obviously owning Microsoft, you own a lot of different businesses as well. So I think it's, um, that's a play I would go if I had to just pick one. That was not what I was expecting. And that was boring and I'm disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Or, or C Limited, maybe. That would be C another Limited. One. We yeah. didn't talk about yeah, C Limited. Yeah, you didn't talk about it. That's why we I didn't, didn't talk about it, C Limited. Yeah. This is a good opportunity to talk about C Limited. It's basically 10 cent for the rest of Southeast Asia. Payments, e commerce, and gaming. Uh, their G Arena platform has hundreds of millions of daily users. So Which if you had to pick one. Insane. Uh, if I had to pick one, see, SE's been on, on my radar earlier in the, the COVID pandemic, and the stock's up 350% since then. So, whoops, I didn't buy it. Um, I'm not going to say Tencent either, because on the last podcast, I said that it was very, very high on my watch list to the point where I really want to start a position for all of the reasons mentioned uh, gaming aside, but gaming obviously being a big part of that. I am going to go with the new IPO, Unity. I think, yes, 
it's a new IPO, but the business model is not new. Their market share in gaming is not new. Like I said, 50% of the game's built on it. I see that accelerating with them being so uh, important in terms of mobile gaming development. The numbers speak for themselves, so that's going to continue to grow. And this engine that they've built, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here in my own experience. They build very, very cool engines that other industries can use. So I'll give you the example. There's a company that builds for real estate companies this massive interactive touchscreen experience for new condo developments so that people can go into the show home, see the entire uh, development that's being proposed. And it's not just like a 3D rendering. It's so interactive. You can play with it. You can click on it. It'll open drawings. It's a very, very cool experience and seeing it is believing it. You're kind of in awe when, when you see it. And that's all built on Unity's platform. So in terms of what creators can build on it, I look at Unity as a very similar business to Adobe. Adobe is the platform where creators can build from in a software as a service model um, and then post-launch the operate solutions, they can continue to have those uh, recurring revenues. So like Adobe, there's different packages you can buy, everything from Unity Pro, Unity Enterprise, to Unity Personal and Unity Student. So depending on what kind of the video game developer you are, um, there's different tiers and, and, and models for you. So I think of unity and gaming as the uh, the adobe business model and uh i don't know if you've checked recently but uh adobe's done pretty damn well over the last 20 years so shareholders have been rewarded accordingly so that's that is my pick is is unity it's a new ipo they're not generating free cash but this is long term going to be a very very big company yeah, uh, if I had to pick an approach, I would probably not pick a specific company. That's just my personal choice. I would uh, choose a, just do a basket approach, probably like pick, you know, f six or seven of the what I think are the best names and just kind of build a basket approach because I really don't think it's a, a winner take all. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, players, um, probably winners not maybe multiple winners like in um, terms of dozens and dozens of winners but there's probably like going to be five six companies that will do very well in the next decade or so you're right it's it's not a winner takes all it's a it's a very big pie and the pie itself is growing the total addressable market itself is growing so there will be multiple winners um and there will be lots of very, very successful investments in gaming. So you can go pick one or you can go the route that Simon's suggesting, which is also legit. Can't go wrong. All right. Shifting gears. Not as exciting yeah. as gaming. <laughs> not as exciting as gaming. Canadian or banks in general, but probably a bit more focus on the Canadian banks. Okay, so uh, I guess I'll start with that and we'll just do a bit more an, an overview and we can always come back uh, 
to Canadian banks in a later episode. So I won't talk about or we won't talk about like uh, the nitty gritty of specific banks. But some of the things you'll want to consider if you're um, you're looking into starting a position in, in banks in general and Canadian banks. So in terms of the ratios, and this was a bit inspired by one of the posts that uh, was on Stratosphere uh, 2, one of the uh, community users. Um, was wondering, you know, why um, why do people use a lot of ratios that are specific to equity, assets, liabilities? Um, that's because um, those ratios are really useful for banks, whether you look at the, uh, you know, the price to book ratio, whether you look at the um, assets compared to liabilities or equity in the overall bank. Um, that's because loans are shown as an asset and deposits are shown as liabilities on banks balance sheet so you really the short way of putting it is you want to almost like cancel those two out to see how much net assets the bank has because that'll show what they truly have in terms of what they're worth um so you cancel out what they have in terms of deposit and loans and then you see what the bank really you know is worth in terms of its assets so those are really useful um, price to book is very useful for banks as well you want to look at the whole industry but also historically for for that specific bank um, and I say that for banks but uh, price to book I would kind of be careful for a lot of other industries where it may not be useful at all but definitely for banking it's a useful um, ratio to use so some of the other things like leaving out ratios specifically um, that you'll want to look into so what's the overall interest margins on the bank loan so interest margin is just basically what the bank is paying out in terms of interest on its deposit versus what it's getting in terms of interest on its loan. So the higher the spread, the better for the bank because a lot of the bank's revenue will come from that interest margin. Typically, as interest um, goes down, um, like we are right now, so the lower the interest rates, the kind of the more squeezed that interest margins will be. So that's why you hear a lot of people saying, well, it's not a good environment for banks. So that would be one of the main reasons that it's not. Um, so what type of bank is it? So there's different types of banks. They're not all created equal. Um, so you have consumer retail banks. So banks that will sp specifically aim to provide loans to, you know, everyday people like you and I, Braden, um, commercial banks, which will provide a bit more loans to, uh, you know, commercial businesses, to businesses, investment banks. So you'll have um, like a classic investment bank. Braden, do you have one? I have one on top of my head, but I know you'll, you'll probably guess it. A classic investment bank? Yeah. The one name that probably comes to mind, a U.S. name. I'll be J.P. Morgan. Goldman yeah, J.P. Morgan. Go. I was gonna say Goldman Sachs is probably <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one that G comes to, Goldman to, Sachs to is the is the name. Yeah. So investment banks, what they'll do is uh, typically those investment banks, they'll be the ones involved in IPO. So pricing the IPO and they'll get uh, quite a large fee for uh, doing all of the IPO process uh, when a company is going public. Um, but again, these are all the types of banks that you could get. Um, is it concentrated in one of the areas that I mentioned or is it diversified? The more concentrated it is, the more risk it can have if that type of uh, concentration goes south. Um, another thing you'll want to look into um, is it ge geographically diversified or concentrated in a specific country and in Canada 
you have to really be careful about that because a lot of the Canadian banks are very concentrated in Canada. Um, there are some that have a pretty large present um, elsewhere. So names that come to mind, TD has a pretty big uh, presence in the U.S. Uh, Bank of Nova Scotia. I don't know if you've traveled in. Well, you did travel in South America and Latin America. So they have a big presence over there. Scotia does have a big presence in South America. And uh, it's always kind of weird to see you're traveling and you see a Canadian bank branch. Very, very odd. At Cambodia. I was in Cambodia. National banks are everywhere. Yeah, I mean, even and Jamaica, I, I had I trouble with my, <laughs> I had trouble using my Canadian debit cards at both of them. Get that? <laughs> yeah. So it's just um, those are just some of the things you want to ask yourself, because obviously, you know, it's not there's not a right or wrong answer in all of these. But just be aware because the risk will change. You know, if there's uh, for Bank of Nova Scotia, if there's a lot of unrest going on or a lot of, uh, you know, uh, inflation going on in South America or Latin America, that could create an issue for them. Um, so that's something you'll want to look at. Um, so another thing you want to look at is it concentrate in a specific type of loans. Uh, for example, CIBC um, has a lot of residential uh, mortgage loans in Canada. So that could make it quite vulnerable if there's a housing downturn in Canada. Um, I know TD has a pretty big uh, mortgage division as well, but they're a bit more diversified between the U.S. and Canada. Um, at the Another thing you'll want to really look at right now and listen to the conference call just to see what management is saying um, in terms of loan loss provisions. So loan loss provisions are is money that banks are setting aside because they think that people will not pay their loans. That's essentially what it is. Um, there has been an increase in loan loss provisions this year for obvious reasons. Uh, so you want to definitely keep an eye on that and just see what management is saying. Um, a good place where you'll be able to find some really good information because banks are quite complex to look at. But I find that the supplemental financial information um, that is released every quarter is really, really useful for banks. They actually break it down by country, by segment, by overall loans. Um, so it is something that I would strongly recommend that uh, you look at if you're thinking of um, you know, starting a position in uh, one of the Canadian banks. Um, another thing is, is it, you know, a traditional bank or is it an online bank? So that's really important because a traditional bank will have branches, which definitely comes with higher overhead costs, whereas a online bank will usually have higher margins because a lot of their staff, well, it doesn't require as much staff. Um, so they'll usually be a bit more profitable when it comes to that. Um, so Another thing you'll need to ask yourself is where do you think interest rates are going? And don't ask Brayden and I because I don't have a clue. Do you have a clue, Brayden? My mic was muted. Yeah. <laughs> um, do I know where interest rates are going? Absolutely not. Yeah. But I'll, and I'll, they're I'll very ask, low. But... I'll ask Powell. I'll let, I'll let you yeah. know what he says. <laughs> yeah, or uh, I guess it's not Mark Carney anymore. Um Anyways, who the, whoever the new uh, Bank of Canada um, head is. But, Look how uh, relevant he is. We don't even know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he just changed like a it month It just changed. It just changed. So, yeah, so that's to my defense. Um, so 
that is something you'll want to ask yourself and don't be fooled like interest rates are low but uh there are countries in europe where they are seeing negative interest rates so it doesn't mean that it cannot go into negative so keep that in mind um and one other question i would ask myself does it get most of its revenue from uh you know their loans and the interests uh, spread that they get from that or did they also get revenues from fees uh, such as investment services uh for investment banks but also like td or all the different canadian banks i think they all all have like self brokers or brokerage um, some of them offer wealth management services as well so you'll want to look at that see how diversified they are um, i think you guys know what we think about fees and banks in general uh, and you'll have to factor that in if they get a lot of money from their fees and services and if you think that'll keep trending up stay stable or go downwards going forward but those are some of the things i would look at i know it's not it's a lot of information all at once but you want to get a good picture of what you know what the bank is where they're doing what their business is there's where they're getting their revenue their geography and some of the risks uh, going forward and also one of the things you'll have to keep in mind and is traditionally how have they been managed um, i know the laurentian bank of canada they had kind of a mortgage scandal about like loans that were provided uh, without the proper uh, supporting documentation so they had to do some write-offs a couple of years ago so that's something you'll want to keep in mind as well yeah that's, that's a good overview and and i don't have any fiery hot takes about canadian banks other than they're pretty solid backbones of a Canadian equity portfolio. If you want dividend income, then all the power to you. You know, Maybe you want a large portion in banks in that case. Um, but they're not all created equal. They kind of all decided what they want to specialize in outside of retail banking. Once the market of retail banking was kind of tapped out between the big five, they're, they you know sat on the board and said, what do we pursue next? Whether it's retail banking outside of Canada, like TD has a very large retail banking presence in the U.S. Um, and they have a big presence in discount brokerage services with TD Ameritrade. So there's other avenues that they decided to go search for growth. And look, if you've been a shareholder of Canadian banks as a group for a the past few decades, you've done exceptional. Total return wise, you've smashed every index you can find. So, if you want to keep buying banks, I that's that's completely fine. What I will say is, in terms of business models, you know, if you listen to this podcast, I hate commoditized businesses, and banks are pretty close in the fact that they don't sell a commodity but they have a macro factor of they make money from net interest income. That is the top line of a bank's income statement is net interest income. And that is the margin they're making from interest rates, from lending money. And with interest rates being so low right now, completely out of their control, so there's that commoditized piece, they don't have a whole lot of pricing power in in this environment and in any environment. So... It's something to consider. I mean, if you own banks and you see these low interest rates, are you panicking? Probably not. Banks are very solid, and especially the banks in Canada are very solid. So 
hold on to them, but I'm not, you know, putting fresh capital into them. Yeah, one thing I did uh, forget to mention, um, one thing I would strongly recommend that everyone who's looking to invest in a Canadian bank, and uh, I don't know which one has the most exposure for that, but how much exposure do they have to the oil industry? Because you're going to see some bankruptcy. I mean, we've already seen uh, seen some earlier this year. And I know, I can't remember which one, but I know there's a couple that do have quite a bit of exposure. And that is probably a bank I would stay away from. Um, And I'm sorry for our Alberta listeners, um, but it is what it is. I mean, it's um, it's not an easy... Um, an easy, easy time to be uh, like an oil an oil business. Um, that's just a reality. And some of them are largely indebted and they may have to file for bankruptcy. And that could have some pretty big repercussions if there's a lot of exposures to that sector. So that is one thing I wanted to mention specifically for Canadian banks. That's a good point. You're seeing Suncor is laying off a few thousand employees. Uh, that news came out two days ago. So this is... This is the reality that we are in. Uh, so banks that are more exposed to that. I mean, CABC has always been the lowest multiple in terms of valuation of all the big banks because of their kind of sole exposure to housing and mar- and mortgages, which people, for various reasons, have not been a huge fan of them having full exposure to that. So they have varying exposure. They're not all created equal. Um, the notion that all Canadian banks are kind of just the same. I mean, they've performed similarly, don't get me wrong, but uh, that that notion I don't really buy into. Over the last couple of months, I mean, there's been obviously low interest rates. The thing that has been keeping banks like Royal Canada, uh, RBC, and uh, TD is their strong capital markets businesses. And BMO has a pretty good capital markets business as well. Capital markets has been crushing it during all this volatility, especially in like Q1 is like, well, we have this massive loan loss provision. So that's why you're seeing our net income like this. But look, I mean, top line was great. Capital markets was, you know, huge, huge explosive growth. Um, And then once they realized, okay, what stimulus that, Net income is going to be fine because all this loan loss provisions were overextended and overestimated. Banks are going to be fine. So take a look in there into their exposure into capital markets and investment banking. I mean, RBC is kind of the leader in that um, and have been for a long time. So there's different segments. Like I said, they all have a Canadian retail banking business. What else do they have? I mean, that's that's kind of the, the question when you're analyzing all of them. What what else do they have and which one do I like the most? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think this is a good primer for Canadian banks. If uh, people have more questions, we can always do another episode on it. But those are definitely some of the questions you should be asking yourself. If you don't want to dig into it, then maybe look into an index that's tracking those banks and just invest in that. Yeah, I mean, if you want to buy like VCN or X, I forget what the iShares one is, just refer to the last episode of the Canadian market-weighted index fund, you're going to get huge, massive exposure to banks. I mean, you're also going to get some pretty juicy exposure to the oil 
big companies like Suncor that's firing lots of people. But more than 25% of the holdings will be in Canadian banks. So there's, there's something to think about. Uh, RBC and Royal Bank together are 17% of VCN, for instance, just in those two companies. So there's many ways to go about this. But hey, pretty nice dividend yield. Hard to hard to like a stable growing five percent dividend yield. Really hard to dislike that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, look, let's not. I think a lot of people take those dividends for granted. Um, I mean, I think they're for the most part they're pretty safe. Uh, but you know, you just have to look down south to look at. And obviously, there's a bunch of other issues with that one, and I won't go into detail. But Wells Fargo, right? So they had to cut their dividends. So make sure you know. They're pretty safe overall, but, you know, don't assume that it's going on. It's going to go on forever. Um, you know, don't make that assumption. Make sure you, you do your research. If not, you know, do what we just said and just pick an ETF that tracks them or a low cost index that's focused in Canada and you'll get some decent exposure in banking. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to wrap that up, if you are Joe Schmo living in Thunder Bay or, uh, you know, Rick from Red Deer, and you've been dominating the S&P by just holding Royal Bank for you know, over 50% of your portfolio over the last couple of decades. Hold on, man. You've been crushing the S&P, and you've amassed a huge yield on cost in terms of income. So you know, stay the course. Keep, keep, keep what you're doing. All right, that does it for this episode, guys. GetStockMarket.com now brings you to a free, no credit card required trial of the new Stratosphere platform. GetStockMarket.com is no longer a static screener. It is a amazing screener with a company search uh, mechanism, mechanism as well and a forum insider info. My picks. You don't even have to subscribe with a credit card to see my picks for both the U.S. and Canada now. That's at GetStockMarket.com. Stratosphere is live, baby. Um, Simon, you've tried it. What do you think? Yeah, it's uh, it's really nice, uh, nice tool, and uh, just got the notification about your picks, and uh, I've been also chatting on the uh, the forums and people having questions. So, if you uh, guys, you know, if you sign up, you'll probably if, see if you got a question. If you got yeah. a question, go to Simon. This guy's writing essays for you. <laughs> hey, I mean, there's logic the behind my reasoning. Is incredible. <laughs> value you're providing is 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 nice i i gotta step it up with my one word answers my yeah don't buy it um that does it for this week folks thank you for listening this is a long episode holy i'm looking at the time yeah gaming got us fired (laughs) up that does it for this episode guys we will see you back next week we're back on our weekly sketch this podcast is now available everywhere go rate it share it with friends and fam we had over 10,000 downloads last month. Let's get 100,000. See you guys next week. Bye-bye. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simon may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.